The Weather Lounge podcast is brought to you by Crew Tracker Software. This is the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. Hi there, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again in the Weather Lounge. I'm your host, meteorologist Brad Miller. Actually, no, I'm meteorologist Mike Prianti, and we're here with our high-flying podcast coming to you from the tarmac of our Weatherworks headquarters located in Hackettstown, New Jersey. And joining me as always here in the Weather Lounge is my co-pilot, meteorologist Mike Mahalik. And uh, Mike, uh, I noticed that uh, Brad is not in today. Um, do you know where he is? No idea. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know where you're going with this either because you're talking about tarmacs, high-flying, co-pilots. I mean, I get an idea. Can you guess what our topic is going to be about today? Yeah, yeah, I know. You're making the kind of uh, insinuations on who we might be talking to. And uh, I'm thinking it has to do something with flying airplanes. You are right. You are clear for takeoff, Mike. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that's that's These puns are out of control. I thought Brad was bad, but... Hey, look, Brad wrote this, guys. So if you want to complain... Uh... To anybody, Brad wrote this, so my hands are clean. You know what? That explains a lot. You know, this doesn't seem like something you would write, Mike. So that's why, uh, um, yeah, I get it now. Yeah, this is definitely a Brad over the top, um, trying to be funny piece. Brad, if you're listening to this podcast, it's not funny. We'll see what our listeners think. Hopefully, we haven't already bored them. But you know what, Mike? I think that's enough. I think we need to introduce our guest today. And if you haven't noticed already, we are going to be talking about aviation and its impact uh, in the weather world. And of course, we have brought on a fellow meteorologist who works here at WeatherWorks, uh, Nate Waltman. And he knows a little thing or two about aviation and kind of how pilots deal with the weather on a day-to-day basis. So without further ado, let's Join him in the Weather Lounge, and uh, Nate, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It, uh, it's glad I'm glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, Nate, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in aviation, and you know, this might go hand in hand with you obtaining your uh, degree in meteorology. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, I mean, there's two things I've always really loved in life uh, since I was, you know, very young and. Um, those two things are weather and uh, aviation. So uh, when I went to you know school and you know picked up meteorology, it you know seemed to almost fit naturally. Um, you know I always kind of wanted to do something with aviation, and so you know when I learned about you know aviation meteorology, it you know really piqued my interest. And uh, you know, I took quite a few uh, great classes at a uh, Valparaiso University where I studied for meteorology, and um, they had great aviation uh, classes available and. Uh, you know, it, it really uh, helped boost my, uh, you know, I guess uh, my skill in forecasting for aviation and actually led to me getting a few internship. Great. Uh, so does that mean you can fly a plane? I mean, I, I wouldn't <laughs> say that I can, but I certainly have. Um, you know, I, I've been up in the way, 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 way. I wouldn't say you can, but you have. 
so I can taxi the planes and I can take them off. <laughs> I just haven't mastered the landing part. So, uh, you know, that's I, probably one of the most important things about flying, right? Because, like, think about it. You're, you're in the air and all of a sudden there's an emergency. You need to be able to know how to land the planes. I think that's the most important part. I, I don't know. I'm not a pilot. So he's like he's like Indiana Jones. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, is because Indiana Jones can never land it. You could always right. right? Any any landing you can walk away from is a good one. That's you well. Know. I mean, anybody can land a plane. It's just not going to be the right landing. No, no, <laughs> right? Absolutely not. But no, I I had a pilot, uh, you know, fly with me and kind of show me the ropes, and you know, he let me uh, take the controls a few times. So yeah, I had a uh, you know, and him instructing me and got to you know fly around in the plane. So and definitely talking about like you know F 18s and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> big fighter jets and, uh, you know, massive uh, you know, there you 747s. Go, so. <laughs> OK, sorry, getting off topic a, a, a little bit. But so you have a lot of experience with, um, you know, aviation and meteorology kind of going hand in hand. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, how meteorology and aviation are related with a historical aspect, you know, how did this start? I mean, I could see the relationship already, but let's go through a little bit of the history of, you know, their, I guess, uh, partnership. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, aviation and meteorology have always been hand in hand, like you said, um, you know, even back to the first flight at, uh, you know, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, uh, almost 120 years ago. Now it was uh, back in 1903. And uh, the Wright brothers actually requested a forecast for the surface winds for that first flight. So, you know, all the way back to the very first flight ever, uh, you know, meteorologists have been necessary uh, for those flights to be successful. Um, and, you know, uh, going into the 1900, uh, you know, 1900s then, uh, you know, we had quite a few, uh, you know, aviation forecasts started uh, propping up in, you know, the late uh, 1910s and 1920s. And, you know, with the Second World War, aviation uh, meteorology really took off, uh, no pun intended, as, uh, you know, all these pilots in, uh, you know, the war kind of need to know, hey, what are the conditions going to be? Are we going to be able to see the targets we're going for? Or, you know, are we going to be able to take off or, you know, hey, are we going to have a place to land when we come home? So, you know, it's it's really grown uh, since then. And, you know, obviously after World War Two with, you know, jet planes and commercial aircraft really taking off again, um, you know, it, it just, you know, has only uh, blossomed this, uh, you know, growing uh, this growing uh, industry. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, with the with the war effort and stuff like that, I know the weather was a huge part of the, the D-Day operation um, and how that was accomplished. And, you know, I know there was a specific window they had to, you know, hit for the bombers to, uh, you know, see their targets and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, so it, it's unfortunate sometimes that uh things like war um uh, <laughs> prompt advances in technology but you know sometimes it does because you know it, it's so crucial um to you know make that mission a success so um you know it's definitely interesting how how that uh how that develops for sure yeah, absolutely. And one of those pieces of technology uh, you mentioned even was 
radar, actually. Uh, you know, the first radars were developed in World War II because they wanted to see, hey, where are the enemy planes? Are, you know, are there bombers coming in to attack us? And when they, uh, you know, activated the radar, all of a sudden they're like, oh, what are these, you know, strange readings we're getting? And all of a sudden they realized they were picking up thunderstorms. And so they were, you know, detecting rain and thunderstorms. And they said, well, hey, that's not right. We don't want to detect that. We want to detect the planes. And so it kind of got in the way. But, you know, following the war, they they kind of took a step back and realized, hey, this could be really useful. You know, we could use this to, you know, forecast the weather and know what's going on in real time and, you know, use an actual, uh, you know, tool other than just our eyes to detect uh, what's happening with the storms. Now, do you think um, if there weren't any wars like do you think this technology would have pro- like would, would we have probably you know i'm thinking outside of the box here i'm trying to think if like you know because obviously you said that radar was developed kind of to, to detect enemy bombers but weather was sort of like a oh that's unfortunate we can see rain actually wait a minute no that's great we can see that it's good for the industry uh, down the road. But if that never happened, if we didn't have any wars, would we have maybe never got into this technology until later on, you think? Yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, you know, I think we would have definitely developed radar, you know, one way or another, um, you know, with all of our advances and, you know, electromagnetic, uh, you know, research, but uh, it definitely wouldn't have been at the rate that it did develop uh, back in the war. Uh, you know, it certainly wouldn't have been until I would say at least the 50s or 60s before they even thought about, you know, hey, we could use this to possibly pick up things in the air. So it was, you know, it honestly, like you said, it's it's really tragic that, uh, you know, we have to have the war to kind of, you know, drive these technological advances. But it really does uh, kind of expedite the process of, uh, you know, coming up with these new technologies. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like it would follow eventually that we would have came up with something like that. Because, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, the Wright brothers and and, and them needing the weather uh, for their first flight, um, you know, you would think that, well, you know, if they need the weather, there's got to be a better way to see the weather. And, and you know, then it eventually probably would have came about. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I agree here. I mean, obviously, we're all just speculating whether or not that really would have happened. Um, but um, or, or how fast it would have happened. But yeah, I think it was certainly uh, sped up with that process. Um, but, um, you know, moving on, um, you know, so yeah, the radar was developed, you know, so we could see the weather and all that and, and to detect airplanes and, and, and all that. Um, but before you go out, um, even to fly a plane, uh, I'm sure there's some sort of briefing that's required before this happens. Yeah, no, every, uh, actually it's, it's mandated every pilot that goes to, uh, fly, you know, whether it's just, uh, you know, a big, uh, commercial airline or, uh, some military flight or even just, you know, uh, you know, random guy in his little old, uh, little old single engine plane, um, they have to call up a, you know, certified meteorologist and receive a weather briefing, uh, you know, telling them, hey, here's your conditions for the flight. Here's what you can expect. And, you know, here's the airports you can land at because, you know, some pilots aren't, uh, you know, aren't skilled enough to land in certain conditions. So they need to know, you know, is it going to be safe enough for me to come back home? So is there like some sort of rating system for the pilot of saying how skilled they are? Yeah. So, I mean, it goes by uh, visual flight rules and instrument flight rules. Um, you know, the all commercial pilots are required to actually have instrument ratings. Um, but, 
you know, general uh, aviation, uh, which is your your standard, uh, you know, business uh, airplanes or just your, you know, casual, uh, you know, planes that you fly around for fun. Most of those pilots don't really go for the instrument rating and just, you know, uh, rely on visual flight rules. So, um, you know, when it comes to that, it really depends on, you know, how much, you know, visibility there is, what the sky conditions are like, you know, if they can see where they're going, if they can see the runway that they're going to land at. Uh, because without the instruments, uh, without an instrument rating, uh, you won't really know where you're going if you're, you know, flying into some clouds. So, um, yeah, they, they, you know, require uh, all these, you know, commercial and uh, even cargo and military to hold, uh, you know, instrument ratings so that they can fly in just about any condition. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, I mean, you know, just from a, a, a the general public's perspective, you know, flying in an airplane, like, you know, you got to think like, that these pilots really got to know kind of where they're headed toward and like got to know the conditions, you know, ahead of time. Like you can't just, you know, when you, when you're on the road and you're, you're driving your car, you know, you, you got to kind of know what you're headed toward, you know, cause sometimes a thunderstorm could, you know, it'll drop the visibility. You could hydroplane, you know, there's a lot of things you got to look out for when you're, when you're driving a car. I imagine it's different for a plane at a different level, but you still got to kind of know the conditions, understand, you know, what you're flying into. So absolutely. And, uh, you know, they actually use a tiered system, uh, meteorologists do to communicate to the pilots, you know, what kind of conditions are at the airport. And so there's, you know, surface stations at every, almost every airport, uh, you know, kind of nationwide, especially the major ones. Um, and they have, you know, four categories of VFR, MVFR, IFR, and LIFR. And so that, you know, VFR, uh, that's visual flight rules. So, you know, that fits under the visual uh, category. And so does MVFR as well. Um, if you think about it, it's kind of like a stoplight for the pilots where, you know, VFR is kind of your green, uh, MVFR is yellow, and then IFR, uh, that's when you need to have an instrument rating to land at that airport. And so that's kind of like the red light. And that says, hey, don't come here. These conditions are kind of bad. You know, unless you really know what you're doing, you shouldn't try to land here. And then LIFR, that's the uh, that's the really bad one. And that's, you know, that's when conditions are, you know, clouds are, you know, less than 500 feet above the ground and visibility is less than a mile. So if you can imagine like a blizzard, you know, that's going to be LIFR. And obviously, you know, that's like a really, really bright red that's saying, hey, even if you're a really skilled pilot, this is going to be a really tough landing. Don't don't try this unless you have to. So does LIFR prevent pilots from like taking off or flying like or, or is that just kind of like a um, like like, you know, at your own discretion or like, you know, use caution? Like I know all the other ones were used using caution, but like is LIFR sort of like a, you know, you really, really, really shouldn't do this. But is it or is it more so you can't do it like we're not going to let you do it? It can kind of be both. So it depends, you know, if you're instrument rated, they will sometimes let you come in. Obviously, if conditions are really bad, they're just going to ground all the flights. They're going to stop all the traffic. They're going to say, hey, airport shut down, you know, and that's usually right around the LIFR area. So they usually won't let it. But if there's a you know plane that's coming in, it's got low fuel, it has to make the landing and they have an instrument rating, they could obviously, you know, attempt it. It's just going to be a really difficult one. And so that's why it's kind of theirs to tell the pilots, hey, this airport's not so great. But then one down the road might be, oh, this is just IFR. You could land here. No problem. Interesting. Yeah. I just wonder like what that threshold is. I mean, I know there's probably thresholds for each one of these uh, flight rules, um, but like, you know, 
as far as you know you're say you're dealing with a snowstorm like is there a certain um accumulation threshold that's you know affecting the runway that they can deal with and not deal with or you know i know they always try to clear it and and be on top of that but is there a certain point where it's like you know this is it man we can't do it you know this is just bad news yeah i mean i would say lf LIFR is certainly that uh, kind of threshold that says, hey, you shouldn't think about landing here. Um, you know, most airports are going to shut down at that point. Um, but, you know, it's really just a uh, it's a it's a visibility and it's a cloud rule, actually. So, you know, ice and snow doesn't really have any effect on these conditions. Um, you know, this, the runway could be covered in, you know, 12 inches of you know snow. It could be VFR. It could be, hey, this is, you know, a clear airport. So yeah, that's where um, it actually comes into uh you know, communicating with, you know, the airport and the ground crews and saying, hey, you know, what conditions are your runways like? And um, each time a pilot lands at, you know, a commercial airport, they will give a braking action report um, for the runway they landed on. And so they will, you know, report to the tower. They'll say, hey, we had good braking, you know, or hey, we, you know, started with good braking. Then it kind of, you know, got really icy and slippery. And then we were able to brake again at the end. And so that will tell the tower, hey, like, you know, communicate to other pilots, you should wait, you know, let us clear the runway or, hey, you know, pilots, you know, it's good to land here, even though it's snowing, you're going to have, you know, an, the ability to stop on the runway. Yeah, I mean, that that always fascinated me a little bit, because, you know, you talk about driving a car, and, you know, you run into, you know, heavy rain or something like that, and you have the potential to hydroplane. And then here you have a airplane, say, landing or, or even taking off and how how fast. I mean, I don't know exactly how fast you get, you know, until you're able to take off. Maybe you know this. It, <laughs> it depends on the plane for sure and how much it's weighing. But, yeah, you're definitely going to be going at least 150 to, you know, maybe even 200 miles an hour before you're taking off. So, you know, for bigger planes, I should say the small planes could probably get off, you know, about 80 to 100. But. Yeah, you're definitely going to be going highway speeds. So, yeah, if I am in a bigger airplane and it's raining <laughs> and I'm going 150 to 200 miles an hour, like, uh, how are we not hydroplaning? I mean, is it just the wheels that they're using or something like that? Yeah, so the wheels certainly play into it a bit. Um, it's actually mostly the runway itself. Uh, lots of engineering has gone into the runways and, you know, obviously runway development in the last hundred years. And, um, you know, they've like they do on, you know, some roads, they'll put grooves into the runway. And so that'll, you know, kind of mitigate the rain pooling on top. And um, they even almost, you know, will slope the runways just a little bit to kind of allow that rain to kind of run off the sides and, you know, not pool up in the center. And, you know, create a hydroplaning uh, hazard. Um, you know, different types of concrete are even being developed now, and some of them are able to be porous and allow some of that rain to come through. So, um, you know, they're always making advances in the engineering for, you know, the runways as well as the planes themselves. So would you say that the the runways that they make, they're, they're more so designed for more traction in those instances? And I guess because a, a NASCAR track is the opposite, I think, right? Or am I getting that wrong? I'm not a NASCAR fan because I know that you can't drive when it's raining for a NASCAR race, right? So like, I don't know if there is a difference between the asphalt for, for a race and then, of course, on, on the tarmac. Well, yeah, I mean, just from my own general knowledge, I mean, you know, 
you're not going to have grooves in a in a racetrack. No, because that know, slows like it that. down. Um, because that's going because your your idea is whole like I want to go fast. I want to stick to the road. You know, so you're running, you know, smooth pavements that aren't porous. You're 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 running tires that are don't typically have any type of tread on it. It's just slicks. You know, so you know it's designed for good weather and no rain and all that kind of stuff. So, because um, you're trying to get as fast as possible, and but yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> any any type of rain with a slick tire and a slick track and you know is not going to work out you know whereas if you have grooved runways and you have grooved tires on the airplanes you know that should allow that uh rain to uh you know kind of channel off more um as you go higher and higher speed right right and every time a pilot flies they're uh you know also supposed to do a you know walk around a pre-flight inspection and you know they always you know they always, uh, you know, it, are just looking at their plane. They're making sure everything's working. They're making sure everything's, you know, in the right order. And, you know, one of those checks is the tires and, you know, hey, what condition are the tires in? Are they going to be able to stop? Are they going to be able to have traction? And, you know, that's where you know, every pilot's got to know, you know, all right, do I have a chance of rain? You know, are my are my tires too worn that, you know, they're going to slip on this rain? Or, you know, is this runway not, you know, the best if it's going to, you know, pull up a bunch of rain and I might slide off the runway? So, Again, you know, that's where meteorology really comes into it and, you know, why a weather briefing is so crucial for pilots before they fly. So uh, I'm just we were talking about the flying conditions and the uh, the IFR and the LIFR uh, ratings. So um, I guess what happens is, is that when, you know, say it's the summertime and you have a thunderstorm over an airport, um, I suppose this is somehow you know, it communicated to the pilot, hey, say, saying that, hey, we have a thunderstorm in the area, you know, you're going to have to circle around for a while before you can make this landing, or how does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, thunderstorms can be one of those uh, weather events that, you know, shuts down an airport single-handedly. Um, you know, it, it it really depends on the strength of the storm, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, dangers that come with thunderstorms to airplanes. Um, you know, one of the major things is actually the winds. Uh, because, you know, if you could imagine that you're coming into land and, you know, you've, you, you know, your plane will fall out of the sky at a hundred, you know, miles per hour and you're coming at 120 miles per hour. If you get a 25 mile per hour gust or even 30 or 40 mile per hour gust and your plane, you know, goes down to 80 miles per hour, that's really bad news if you're only, you know, a hundred or 200 feet off the ground. So, you know, it's, it's crucial for pilots to know about thunderstorms and, you know, meteorologists are always, always on edge uh, about thunderstorms when they're dealing with aviation. Um, it's one of the biggest things that they deal with. Uh, turbulence actually is a major thing with thunderstorms too. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but, um, you know, lots and lots of turbulence is caused from thunderstorms. Um, you know, as those storms go up, they explode up into the air. And then once they hit the top, they kind of, you know, stall out and, um, you know, what they do is they kind of send ripple patterns out, you know, in every direction almost. And those ripples are, you know, kind of what creates the turbulence. And, you know, obviously, if it's a really strong storm, it creates strong turbulence. And, you know, if you've ever been in a plane with really bad turbulence before, you know, it's not a fun time. Well, I haven't been on a on a on a flight where it's been that terrible. I mean, yes, I've experienced some turbulence before, but, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know. 
it's almost like hitting like rumble strips or something like that. <laughs> you know, the whole plane is kind of shaking a little bit and, and jostling around and you're kind of like, oh, this is not cool. So yeah, um, it's like midair that, speed bumps. Right. And you know, that's, that's not the best thing ever. It doesn't make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. That's for sure. Um, it just makes me, uh, you know, think about what, you know, guys like the hurricane hunters go through when they're actually flying through the eye of a, a, a strong hurricane. You know, I can't even imagine, you know, the type of uh, turbulence that they deal with. I mean, it takes guts for those guys to fly those planes where they do. I mean, I'll just say that it takes some real guts for them. What an experience. Like, I always thought like, wow, that would be so great to do that and take a ride through and, and punch the eye and you get that nice stadium effect looking and so from a meteorological standpoint, man, that's so cool. Um, but from a personal standpoint, I don't know if I'd make it if you know <laughs> might need to bring a doggy bag along, right? A, a couple of them, you know? <laughs> oh God. Yeah. That, that must be, a re- that's required. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, though, because those planes definitely have to be manufactured and, de- and designed to, to survive those kinds of winds because, you know, obviously turbulence for a hurricane is nowhere near or probably a much more a little bit higher than, you know, uh, in turbulence of just a thunderstorm. I mean, you know, you're, you're basically flying higher up and, you know, the winds could be pretty, pretty, you know, pretty strong up there. So like a passenger plane would not be able to survive flying into the eye of a hurricane. No, no, not at all. And, you know, that's actually why they use uh, the airplanes they do. They they use uh, actually military aircraft, um, you know, the, the big propeller planes with four props uh, powering it, uh, you know, and, you know, you might wonder, well, why haven't they used a jet plane? You know, why don't they use a big plane of, you know, jet engines? You know, you think about it, that hurricane, it's just a wall of water, basically. You know, it's all you know, all the rain that they're going to fly through. It's, you know, if you've ever seen a video of from the hurricane hunters, I mean, it just looks like a fire hose, you know, just being sprayed on them. So, um, you know, that obviously doesn't work well with jet engines because, you know, they just like a car engine are, you know, combusting and, you know, you need air and fire and, you know, water doesn't really mix well when you're trying to, you know, light something on fire. So that's why they still use you know, propeller planes to this day and why they have to use, you know, military aircraft, a, a bit more, you know, structural integrity to kind of survive those, you know, missions. Right. I'm sure it's not good for a jet engine to be ingesting all that water. No, no. It's, <laughs> they certainly can ingest water. And, you know, that's why you'll fly through, you know, thunderstorms and rain. But that much water for that long, probably not the best thing for them. Since 2004, Crew Tracker Software has enabled snow and ice management companies to save time, money, and resources with their comprehensive digital services platform. All the information needed to plan your operations and make business decisions is current and always available. Along with QuickBooks, Crew Tracker Software provides seamless integration with WeatherWorks certified SoFall totals. Visit CrewTracker.com to rock your game and learn how Crew Tracker Software makes managing snow and ice simple. Take advantage of the SIMA Show Special $500 discount and White Glove Startup Service offer. So you talked a little bit about thunderstorms, um, but I'm sure there's another thunderstorm hazard besides turbulence that we're thinking about and and some of our listeners probably thinking about, and that's lightning. And, you know, how does that affect things? I mean, I 
I know I've seen photos of or, or videos of, you know, people or planes getting hit by lightning, but how, how does that work and how are you safe? I can't imagine myself like being in a plane that gets struck by lightning. I mean, from meteorological side, that sounds cool, but at the same time, that's scary. And I definitely don't want to be in a plane when I get struck. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you, how many times have you been sitting in your house and, you know, lightning hits outside and it sounds like a, sounds a like cannon a bomb going off, off yeah. or, <laughs> or somebody just lit up uh, one of those, one of those really loud fireworks with not much, you know what I'm saying? Um, that you see on the 4th of July just went off outside your house and you're like, holy smoke, you know, <laughs> I'm ready to hit the deck and, you know, find some cover and, and, uh, hitting the plane itself can't be great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it certainly, um, uh, actually, you know, surprisingly lightning's not a huge issue for aviation and for airplanes, uh, especially, um, you know, early on, it definitely was an issue. And obviously, you know, when they were making planes out of wood, certainly not great. Um, but, <laughs> you know, now that we've, you know, advanced quite a bit in the last hundred years, uh, you know, most modern airplanes now are, you know, surrounded by, you know, layers of composite materials. And so if the lightning, you know, hits the outside of the airplane, it's similar to, you know, if it hit a car, you know, it just kind of, you know, radiates around you. It doesn't really affect you. And actually, airplanes are struck by lightning all the time. Um, you know, it's actually quite a common occurrence. You may not, you've probably even, you know, been on a, a flight or two that has been hit and just never knew. Uh, my father has been on at least two flights that have been struck by lightning. And he said all that happened was they didn't even hear a bang. They just, you know, the lights kind of flickered really quick and it, you know, heard like a weird kind of pop sound. And then the pilot came over the radio and was like, oh, yeah, we just got struck by lightning. No big deal. So, you know, no big deal. You know, it's just casual. Hey, you got struck by lightning. We're just we're, we're still headed to your to your destination. We're uh, still on time. No worries. There's, you know, a little lightning. Meanwhile, the Wright brothers get struck by lightning. They're going down. In yeah, flames. That, the whole plane uh, is in flames. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, that would 5, be 5,000 degrees is it, or 50,000 degrees or whatever is not going to work out well. Wouldn't there be a flash? Though? Like, I mean, if you're by a window and you get struck by lightning, wouldn't there be a flash? I mean, I'd imagine so, right? Like, how do you not know you're struck by lightning? Yeah, if you're by the window and you're looking outside at the right moment, I, I assume you would see the flash, um, you know. But yeah, obviously, you know, the conditions of the day, if it's, you know, daytime outside or, you know, if it's dark, you know, that will really play into it, too. And, um, you know, really lightning is just a bigger concern actually for the ground crews. And so, you know, if you've ever been at an airport and been grounded for thunderstorms, it's probably either because of the wind or because the people on the ground can't go out and work because, Hey, if they get struck by lightning, there's nothing really protecting them. That's true. You don't want your, your, uh, the, the bag handlers, uh, getting struck by lightning. That wouldn't be good. No, absolutely not. Or a fuel truck or the people with the, um, what do they call those with the, with the lights? Oh man. Um, honestly, I, I don't really know the tech times. Yeah. yeah. The, they're like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, almost like the, uh, you know, parade leaders, uh, the, the, the crossing yeah. guards of the tarmac. Is that yes. Right, right. right. Exactly. So yeah, I don't want them getting hit struck by lightning and certainly not the fuel trucks either. So, and of course the baggage handlers, I mean, how am I going to get my luggage afterwards if he gets struck? I mean, jeez. <laughs> Imagine you know. your luggage gets gets caught on fire, like <laughs> lightning strikes the bag. Nobody, Nobody's concerned about the handler. They're concerned about their luggage. You I know? mean... I'm joking, obviously, everybody, but, you know, uh, totally joking. But uh, yeah, turbulence, uh, we talked a lot about around thunderstorms. So why is that so hard to forecast? 
Yeah. So, I mean, turbulence is so hard to forecast, mainly because you can't really see it. Um, you know, a lot of turbulence is what's called clear air turbulence. And so uh, what that is, I mean, it's just, you know, a bright blue sky. You look up, you see nothing up there, but you may not know it. It might be, you know, the roughest seas out there, you know, for the airplanes flying up above. It, it just might be a nightmare for them. Uh, so it's really, you know, difficult. It can be difficult to forecast because, you know, you don't have things like radar or, you know, satellite or even models really to kind of tell you, hey, this is where it's going to be. So you kind of really have to, you know, own, um, you know, your your skill of forecasting and you kind of have to, you know, hone in on recognizing patterns and, you know, what kind of different setups will actually create turbulent conditions, um, you know, besides thunderstorms. We really, you know, it's it's really hard to detect uh, turbulence unless we actually send a plane through there. Yeah, I was just about to ask if, like, I guess clear air turbulence is probably the most difficult type of turbulence to to predict or, I guess, you know, detect versus because obviously thunderstorms are going to have turbulence. Like you can see a thunderstorm on radar. You can see how high the cloud is, you know, cloud tops are. And I'm sure you probably can get an idea of kind of the wind speed at, at certain levels. But with clear air turbulence, it's beautiful out like I mean, unless you have upper uh, upper air data you're not going to know right exactly and you know that's where it it really comes in and um you know that's actually kind of the communication aspect between meteorologists and airplanes you know or, air, or pilots i should say you know they they need us to get a, a forecast you know for in their flight but we also kind of need them you know to say hey like what's going on up there you know because we only get upper air data, you know, once every 12 hours and it's it's very, very spaced out. So, um, you know, airplanes have actually been a really useful tool uh, for meteorologists nowadays where, you know, we can ask, hey, what's what's it like up there? You know, airplanes are also now fitted with temperature sensors and you know wind sensors, pressure and all that. So, you know, they're kind of like flying weather stations for us now. And, you know, it's really useful and kind of, you know, it's where the trade off comes in. You know, we we forecast for them and they provide observations for us. I'm just wondering again, we're still on the topic of turbulence, um, but I know there's times when you can, or pilots can get into jet stream winds and they can really cut a lot of time off a of flight or <laughs> put tack time on the flight, depending on how it's uh, how the jet stream's flowing um across the country um i mean i don't know it, I, there must be a lot of turbulence getting into the jet stream i would imagine but then once you're in you're good i guess i don't know yeah actually no you're you're very very close actually i mean you know, the jet stream is a very turbulent area but inside the jet stream you're good you know it's nice smooth you know kind of uh you know steady and constant wind and speed and direction but, you know, exiting or being near the jet stream is actually where the real turbulence comes in. You know, it's kind of that that difference, you know, as as you're, you know, really calm winds and then you transition into the really strong winds. That transition area is where a lot of turbulence can be and where uh, really bad turbulence can reside a lot of the times. So, um, you know, pilots like to use that jet stream, um, but sometimes it, it can come with, you know, a few negative impacts like flying through those turbulent areas. Right. And I guess it doesn't, doesn't really matter if you're going in or out, because either way, you're getting some sort of uh, force and acceleration that, you know, that's hitting your plane, you know. Right. Absolutely. 
Um, but, you know, luckily, turbulence, you know, we keep hyping up here. Don't really want to scare anyone. Uh, it's really, really, uh, you know, uncommon to ever see, uh, you know, any fatalities, uh, even though there's turbulence all the time, uh, you know, just in the past 30 years alone, there's been over, uh, you know, 200 and, you know, 40 some turbulent acts, turbulence accidents reported uh, with, you know, 300 injuries, but only three fatalities worldwide. So, you know, you think about all the planes that are flying worldwide every single day, you know, to have three in 30 years is really, really low. So, you know, even though turbulence might feel kind of scary at sometimes, you know, that's why, uh, you know, we try to forecast it as well as we can. But, you know, it is generally really safe and uh, a lot of it occurs really, really high up. So if a problem does happen, the pilots usually have quite a bit of time to react and figure out what to do. Well, that's good to know. Um, you know, I was going to going to add something in before uh, but uh, when mike was talking about the jet stream and like you know kind of you know uh getting into the jet stream you know to go faster i thought of the movie i don't know if anyone has seen the movie finding nemo um, <laughs> but there's this one scene and it's underwater so it's different in a way but um they you know they they're, they're trying to get to um to sydney australia faster and they have to take these uh these currents and obviously these exist you know ocean currents um, but basically they, 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 they portray them as like these big tubes of water that are going really, really fast. And so when Mike was saying that, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, they, you know, they, 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 they have to get into the jet into these little streams, but it's, it's tough because they're going really fast. So once you go into it, there's that turbulence aspect, you know, the, the fissure, you know, they almost kind of get like thrown into it like crazy, but then once they're in it, it's smooth sailing. Yeah, uh, exactly. I thought of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean. Yeah, you can almost think of it, you know, like you know, air is just as much as a fluid as water is. So, you know, it's kind of like that where the currents are just jet streams and, you know, the airplanes are fish. So, you know, it, you think of it, think about it like that. It's a lot like Finding Nemo. I didn't think we'd be talking about Finding Nemo in an aviation uh, podcast. Well, you know, um, there's flying fish, right? Oh, what, what are you, Brad? You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have to keep it. Uh, yeah, you got to You got to keep the, the crazy puns going, I guess. Keep the corny jokes in. Yeah, of course. We need cor corny jokes. That's for sure. Just keep swimming. Anyway, switching gears out of uh, thunderstorms and turbulence, things like that. I mean, you know, in the wintertime, we have snow and ice that we have to be concerned about when it comes to uh, flights and airplanes. Um, I think one of the most problematic thing might be the, the icing that happens. Uh, uh, on on the airplane itself, correct? Right. Yeah. No, icing is actually a, a major concern, uh, just as much as turbulence, if not more um, for aircraft. Uh, you know, it, it can, you know, sometimes it can just be, hey, a little bit of ice accumulated on our wings and now it's melting as we land. Or, you know, sometimes it can be, hey, our, our wing is totally iced up and now we can't fly. So, um, you know, it, it's it can get really serious really quickly. And, uh, you know, besides just the icing, uh, you know, on the aircraft, you know, icing on the aircraft, it, it can lead to, you know, you know, increased drag or, you know, loss of lift of the plane or reduced power, increased weight, you know, reduced uh, and a reduction of brake efficiency, obviously on the ground. So, you know, ice can have all these, you know, sorts of, uh, you know, really big impacts as well as even accumulating on the windshield. And, you know, obviously you don't want to, have your windshield full of ice. Uh, so, you know, you can't really see where you're going then. So, 
um, you know, icing is a, a really big concern. And uh, because planes fly so high up in the atmosphere, uh, it's always, you know, below freezing up there generally where they're flying. So um, any clouds or any water vapor they interact with is going to be super cooled and is going to immediately attach onto the body of the aircraft. And so that's why if it's, you know, winter or a winter storm and, you know, there's a lot of rain or a lot of precipitation or a lot of, you know, water up in the clouds, that's why you'll have your icing trucks come out and they'll, you know, de-ice the plane and, you know, put those solvents onto the wings to, you know, you know, kind of deter the, uh, you know, super cold water from attaching onto those wings and accumulating, you know, and obviously creating problems for the aircraft and the pilots. So you're saying that, so the, so the planes are not like, I always thought like that the icing was on the ground, like, you know, when, when a, when a plane's been sitting in tarmac for a while and you get accumulation of ice on the plane, but you're saying that they spray stuff onto the plane so that when they take off in the air, any sort of water vapor or, or liquid that's falling, you know, or, or if it's, uh, you know, frozen, doesn't uh, accrete onto the uh, onto the plane. Because I always thought, like, maybe there was some sort of, like, heating element to, like, maybe the wings or, like, the windshield that prevents. But again, it is, like, negative 20 degrees up there. So I don't know how much heat you need, but that's interesting to know. Yeah, no, and the windshields do have heaters uh, built into them, and actually they have windshield wipers too. So you know uh, they they are you know similar to a car where you know you can just turn on the defroster, you know turn on the windshield wipers. Uh, you know probably a little bit different than your car ones, but they, they serve the same purpose. Um, and yeah, I mean it is mostly uh, once they take off, but obviously they can't really you know apply you know de-icing solution once they're in the air. So you know it's kind of like. You know, if you sit on the ground for a really long time, they're like, all right, we got to de-ice you again um, because, you know, once you take off, uh, you know, you're on your own from there. And, you know, anything that happens, you know, pilots got to deal with. And I guess uh, planes, they don't have horns, right? Or maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not thinking <laughs> of a car. Horns, you know, like. Yeah. No horns. No, no the horns. horns. It, it would be quite hard to hear. Um, and I don't know who they'd be honking at if they were close enough to be honking at someone, it would be a bit concerning. So uh, I don't know. Uh, birds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think they would be needing that, but there has been times where I've been on a passenger uh, airliner and, you know, I looked out the window and I could see in the distance, there was another uh, airplane, like not nearby, but you could see it in the distance. And I was just like, you know, should that guy be that close to me or not? I mean, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just sitting here, you know, watching the little, uh, monitor and telling me I'm going 550 miles an hour or whatever it might be. Uh <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, it can be unnerving, you know, seeing them, you know, coming so close. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's lots of systems into, you know, in today's planes, as well as, you know, the air traffic controllers that are always on watch and always monitoring and, uh, you know, giving specific, uh, almost like highways for the airplanes to fly along. So, um, they can kind of keep track of them and, you know, there's these jet routes, you know, across the United States that, uh, you know, aircraft use similar to highways, uh, you know, where they, you know, kind of get directed by air traffic control and say, all right, you know, go merge with this jetway and take it all the way to this place. And then you can exit, you know, and go land. So, um, you know, it's it's a bit more simplified, um, you know, than it sounds, but or, or than, it, than it is. But um, you know, that's that's essentially what the air traffic controllers are doing when, you know, they're directing those commercial aircraft. And, you know, that's how they keep them all in a row. 
Yeah, you know, just go down the, go two lights down, make a left at the gas station, and then land at. Uh... Turn right at the big rock, and yeah, then come in for a landing. <laughs> what is this? Uh, what do the what do planes now have? Like GPS, like navigation <laughs> systems, like uh, yeah. you know, in two hundred in two hundred miles, head right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah, you could say so. Well, anyway, um, moving on to uh, some more of your experience. Um, you had an internship that I see that um, you dealt with some cloud seeding in North Dakota. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, very correct. Um, and, you know, cloud seeding can be kind of a triggering term for some people. They might think, oh, you know, it's, uh, you know, chemtrails and, oh, they're, you know, putting stuff into the air. But actually uh, what this project di- does, um, you know, this project's been around for many, many years now, all the way back into, I think, the 80s, maybe even 70s. Um, you know, this project has been uh, put on by the government of the state government of North Dakota, and it's funded uh, funded every stu- uh, every summer. And what they do is they, uh, you know, hire out this uh, this parent company uh, called Weather Modification, and they supply pilots and planes. And then uh, the state uh, hires meteorologists to kind of direct these planes. And so what the planes do is, uh, you know, the meteorologist says, hey, there's a thunderstorm coming and this thunderstorm might be capable of hail. And obviously hail is really bad for crops. And uh, if you've ever been to the Dakotas or, you know, the Great Plains, you'll know there's a lot of crops. So, uh, you know, all the farmers up there, that's, you know, how they make their living. And, you know, if a hailstorm comes through and destroys their whole crop, they don't make any money that year. So a lot of these farmers, uh, you know, really want this project to stay around because, this project, uh, what they do is they use aircraft to fly up to the thunderstorms and then they seed the thunderstorms uh, with silver iodide solution or dry ice or flares. Um, and what these you know, solutions do is kind of create uh, more water molecules uh, in the storm. And that sounds kind of you know, counterintuitive, but actually, you know, hail, when there's lesser water molecules, it can form, you know, into really, really big hailstones when it's up into, you know, up in the uh, cold environment of the thunderstorm. But when you add more water droplets, it kind of, uh, you know, inhibits that hail growth and it makes the hail a lot smaller. So the hail is, you know, more like pea size or dime size rather than, you know, baseball or softball size. So, you know, if you're a farmer on the ground, you know, pea size hail is definitely a lot better than seeing golf balls or baseballs coming down in your crops. And, you know, a lot of the times they, uh, you know, even just eliminate the hail by, you know, making it small enough that it melts before it even reaches the ground. Wow. I mean, that's I never even realized that um, that was kind of a project that was going on. So that's sounds super helpful <laughs> for a lot of these farmers. That's for sure. Um, I've heard of these things and I, I mean, I'm forgetting what the name of them are, but they, they were these, I don't know if they still use them, but like they're, I'm sure you probably know this, Nate. Um, they are instruments that I guess on on the ground that they would like, they would shoot like sound, like uh, hail cannons. Is that what they're called? Yeah, I've, I've definitely, I've heard of the hail cannons before, um, you know, I'm not really sure about how effective they are. Um, I, th- I think that's kind of uh, still out in, uh, you know, out for debate. But 
you know, some people claim they work. Um, you know, I don't think many people use them. It's not very common that it's used, but I do know of at least a few instances where it has been used before. And, you know, I can't really speak on how effective it was, but I do know that, you know, this project, uh, you know, North Dakota, uh, it's been, you know, around the country as well. It's been in other places. And, you know, even in the winter, they do it in, uh, you know, like the California mountains and, you know, Wyoming. And what they do is they increase snowfall so that there's a larger snowpack and they have more fresh water in the, uh, you know, spring and summertime for all the people. And just for uh, listener information, Hail Cannon is a shockwave generator aimed to disrupt the formation of hailstones in the atmosphere. So there you go, Mike, you had it. Um, hail cannons. Um, do they actually work? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you, you question know? on TV, when you buy a, a, a as seen on TV product, does it really work? You know, yeah. it sounds cool, but you know, unless sounds it actually cool. works, idea is good, but in practicality, I mean, just in a quick Google search, I mean, you know, I didn't do any more research than just doing this, but uh, it just says, do hail cannons actually work? And they say there is no scientific evidence for their effectiveness. So I'm not saying they do or do not. I'm just reading right off what I searched. So, um, uh, but I guess it is a little bit questionable. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine, too, being in the neighborhood, you'd get pretty annoyed hearing that hail cannon booming and going off, you know, every time there's a thunderstorm that goes up as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know what type of noise it does make. So, um, hey, anyway, I, 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 let's uh, let's move on uh, <laughs> from these uh, uh, controversial uh, subjects that we don't know if do or they do or do not work. So. Um, you know, I don't want to offend anybody out there if they think a hail cannon is the, uh, the be all end all of hailstones. So, uh, <laughs> space launches now, uh, space. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously up in space, you know, we're not really dealing with atmospheric weather here on earth, but you have to get through the atmosphere before you get to space. So I'm sure, um, there are lots of factors we have to deal with uh, when we're coming to launching a rocket. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, space launches uh, are even more critical uh, for the weather because you think about it, you know, an airplane, it costs a lot of money and, you know, all that. But, you know, space launches are lots and lots of money. And, you know, if lightning was to hit a, a rocket, uh, for example, it could have devastating consequences. Uh, you know, they're not built like airplanes to have, you know, multiple, you know, to be able to take lightning strikes or, you know, to be able to handle high winds. Um, so, you know, a lot of the times uh, when a, you know, space launch is, you know, scrubbed to a later date or, you know, pushed back, delayed, it's a lot of times it's because the weather isn't good. Um, and so, you know, they are, you know, constant contact, uh, you know, with meteorologists that are, you know, monitoring the upper level winds and monitoring, you know, conditions for thunderstorms or, you know, the ability for lightning, you know, even if it's not going to be a thunderstorm, uh, you know, because all of this is really going to be, you know, really big, uh, you know, have really big impacts on the rocket itself and, you know, the ability to launch it. Uh, cold is actually a really big factor for rocket launches as well. That's why most rocket complexes are, you know, so far south. They're in the warm weather. It's, you know, you find them in Texas, Florida, you know, California, you, 
won't find them up, you know, in Maine or, uh, you know, uh, you know, New York, where you're, you're going to get a lot of cold a lot of, a lot of the year. Um, you know, one of these more notable cases was the Challenger disaster, um, you know, and actually the Challenger disaster was because of the cold. Um, you know, there was O-rings on the rocket booster uh, that kind of sealed them together. And these, you know, O-rings weren't designed for cold temperatures being in Florida. And, you know, days prior to the Challenger launch, uh, they had uh, temperatures below freezing in Florida. And, you know, below freezing temperatures are super rare for Florida, but obviously it happened. And uh, when it did, uh, some of the engineers grew a bit concerned. They said, hey, these these O-rings, they might be too brittle. They might be, you know, they might break in the cold. And that's exactly what happened. One of the O-rings, it, it shriveled up. It was too frail. And, you know, when it broke, unfortunately, you know, the whole entire rocket and space shuttle itself broke up as well. So, you know, cold can have a huge impact and it's why they always try to pick warmer climates, you know, to avoid that. Um, but, you know, winds can be just as dangerous um, if there's a really strong gust really high up in the air. Um, you think about it, a rocket, it's it's kind of, you know, when they detach, you know, that first part of the rocket, that whole entire first half is empty. You know, it was full of fuel at the you know ground, but now it's empty. So if you think about it, it's kind of like a big hollow tube. And before they detach it, if you have a really big wind gust, um, you know, it's going to kind of spiral out of control and, you know, send the rocket off course. So, you know, winds and cold and like I said, lightning is also a really big factor. Apollo 12 actually um, was struck by lightning as it launched. And actually, they almost didn't make it to space. Um, they they were struck by lightning. It completely fried their guidance computer. And, you know, it like, you know, was sending all their electronics into haywire. And this was only, you know, moments after they launched. So you, immediately they had problems and they had to deal with them, you know, as this rocket, you know, this massive Saturn V rocket sending them up to the moon. Um, and luckily, one of the astronauts was well trained and he knew, hey, I can switch to the auxiliary power. And he switched over to the auxiliary and he saved the entire mission. And uh, if he hadn't done that, you know, flip, they would have had to abort and we would have never made it to the moon on Apollo 12. It's just as important, uh, you know, in you know space as well as aviation. Uh, I would even argue it's more important for space, you know, and they they're constantly in contact with those meteorologists. And, you know, those those meteorologists that forecast for space launches, especially the manned ones, I would say, have one of the hardest jobs out there. You know, they've they've got those people's lives in their hands, really. And, you know, they've they've got to make a decision and they have to be right about it. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking to myself, I mean, I don't know if I'd want to be that meteorologist on duty um, <laughs> that, that day when we're going to uh, launch, launch that rocket and, and conditions are iffy. I mean, yeah, if it's a nice day and everything's fine, you know, that's different. Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but if it's if it's like mission critical there, uh, oof. Right. And if you know Florida, you know that pop up thunderstorms are almost a daily occurrence, especially in the summer. So, you know, it can be pretty challenging for those meteorologists sometimes. You know, they got to figure out, hey, it's a 50 50 shot. OK, are we going to launch or is there going to be a thunderstorm today? And they've got to know that, you know, they have to figure it out and they have to give a definitive answer. Hey, you're you're good to go. You're good. Go for launch or, hey, no, we got to delay this. We got to launch another day. What about um 
like we talked about landing for planes. What about um, re or like uh, entering the atmosphere again? So like re uh, re-entering Earth from space. Um, obviously, there's weather, you know, considerations for that as well. Um, are they different or are they about the same as to how they take off? Um, you know, it's a little bit different, uh, because, you know, they're coming in so fast. Um, you know, it's almost kind of like a bullet, you know, coming through the atmosphere. And so if you think about a bullet, just, you know, shooting through the atmosphere, you know, super fast, um, you know, it's coming in, it's got all that fire and flames. And then once it, you know, gets to the thicker parts of the atmosphere where the weather is, um, you know, that's, that's when they deploy the shoots, but yeah, it can be a really big concern, you know, for, you know, landing a spacecraft even because, you know, they, you know, if you deploy those shoots and there's, you know, a thunderstorm around, you don't want to be in a, a capsule with parachutes, you know, with a thunderstorm might be throwing you whichever direction it wants. So, um, even back to, you know, Apollo, they, uh, Apollo and even the first launches, they had alternate landing zones, um, for the astronauts. So, you know, if, the astronauts, you know, weren't, uh, you know, the conditions weren't safe where they wanted to land. They would have another, you know, alternate spot that they could go land that would have safer conditions. And same thing with the space shuttle. It, they never had to use it, luckily, but they had multiple uh, places they could land a space shuttle, even overseas. I think there was one even uh, in England or something that, uh, you know, they were able to use if they needed to. But luckily, fortunately, they, you know, never had to. They only landed in Edwards in California and uh, obviously at the Kennedy Space Center down in Florida as well. Yeah, well, hopefully they don't uh, land in a hurricane. That would not be good. <laughs> no, hopefully not. That would be uh, that would be quite the news story, but not in a good way. Well, anyway, uh, it, it soon you know they're going to be launching the new uh, Artemis mission um, uh, that is supposed to take us back to the moon and then possibly to Mars is is what I hear. Yeah, um, which sounds just absolutely insane and um i am not going to sign up for that meteorologist position <laughs> well you know space is the final frontier you know i uh a, a captain once said that uh back back in the day uh, are you captain kirk channeling brad again i see um <laughs> One day we'll have our own enterprise that'll uh you know maybe not the space shuttle but uh, we'll have a, a legit space uh ship into into mars i i thought our co-host brad miller wasn't here but i really think he's just feeding you lines in an earpiece um to uh... oh, my my cover is blown all right we gotta end this now okay <laughs> well anyway uh nate thank you so much uh for being on the podcast i think this is really interesting talking about weather and, and how it affects aviation and even space yeah we appreciate it thanks course yeah thanks so much for having me I've, I've had a great time well again thanks a lot nate and uh that is it for our podcast this week uh remember that the weather lounge has new podcasts every two weeks so come back and give a listen and you can find us on any platform you can find your podcast so just search the weather lounge and also Visit weatherworksinc.com. That's our parent company, and you can find out about all we do with the weather. So that's it. Again, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon in a new podcast.